If, a, if you're looking at a man walking into a burning building and you say, have a nice day, and he walks into that building, do not tell me that because you said, have a nice day in a nice way. Or if you said, you know, the, burning, the building's burning, maybe you shouldn't go there. And, but you say it with a smile. You cannot tell me that person's being loving. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this very day to study your Word. It's your Word that we give you praise for in these moments. Your Word that we want to be applied to our heart. I ask, Lord, for receptive hearts to hear what you have to say, to receive it, to receive it as a gift from you that is meant to be applied by the working of your Holy Spirit. Lord, in left to ourselves, we can accomplish no good thing. You are the one who has commands, and you are the one who has the power to carry them out, and that in us. So I pray that we would take the knowledge of this word by your power, that we might live a godly life, and that we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I I magnify the word as a book like no other book. It's a book written over such a long period of time, over 1,500 years written by so many, over 40 authors in three languages. Lord, it's, and it folds together and fits together perfectly. Lord, just draw out from your word this very day that we might behold the magnificence of your ability to communicate and give us ears to hear with, eyes to see, and a heart to perceive and receive what you have we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to my listeners, we're in episode 35. We're in the Romans Revelation series. I've been going through it, and I'm in, presently in Romans chapter 8. I am going to be speaking today, though, however, from Hebrews. The uh, main verse or the key verse will be Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1, and the title of this message is Let Us Fear. Now, while I'm going to be speaking from Romans, I'm going to be all over. I want people to understand, you know, an expositional preaching is where you go to a text and you extract from that text. We have to understand, however, that the Bible is a whole as a unit. And while it's good to be, and I prefer to be expositional and focus on a few verses, but then draw in the rest of Scripture. If it's done with integrity, if it's done correctly, those Scriptures are not used as one against another just for the purpose of making a point, but they're used correctly in their own context, and they fit correctly with the Scripture that's being exposited for the day. And what, what that basically means is we don't take a verse that says Judas went out and hanged himself, 
And then another verse that says, you go out and do likewise. And we connect the two of them together, and they don't all fit. There's no such command. It's ridiculous. And that's the last thing we want to do. At the same time, we understand that God, when he wrote the word, he did it over a long period of time with many men, and each one of them has parts like Moses in writing the book of Leviticus, the author of the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews perfectly complements Leviticus, so it makes Leviticus make sense. It brings it all together perfectly. And so separating scriptures as if you can never bring one with the other is m- missing the greatest, the, the, the most important part of the Bible, that it's one, just as God is one. It's not, we can all, you talk about the Father, you can only talk about the Father. no. The Father is one person in the triune God. And you understand the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is three persons making one God. We can't comprehend the idea, but we need to talk about it all. And I'm going to be doing that today in these scriptures. And I hope it's not confusing. I hope it comes and, and makes one, it becomes clear. Now, from Romans 8, we understand speaking from where we left off last time, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? And these things immediately preceding is talking about our being conformed to the image of Christ, God's Son, and that that is the ultimate plan that is predetermined by God that those whom are chosen, those whom are, who are called, those who are justified and glorified are all for this purpose that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. There can be no higher purpose in, in, in creation than conformity to the image of God's Son, who is Almighty God. And then he goes on in verse 31 and says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? His argument is now how for sinners is a God who forgives sin with the ultimate purpose of changing sinners into the image of his son who is holy and righteous and merciful and kind and full of grace and full of truth and who would never lie. All of that conformity is the purpose of the plan and the argument is making is, which let me read it, if God is for us, Who is against us? I mean, who could possibly be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He will, who will bring charges against God's elect? I mean, who who can bring a charge when God is the judge? God sees all things. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's just. I mean, what's the point of anyone bringing a charge? God who is, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? I mean, who can condemn when God is the one who sent his son and by his son justifies those whom he redeemed? And so the Apostle Paul continues down this line of thinking and just multiplies thought upon thought upon thought that the Christian, the one who is forgiven of their sins, is assured that God is on their side. 
Christ Jesus is he who died, he says, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He, he comes in between. He's standing between Almighty God and the person whose sins have been forgiven, and he says, I died for this person. Therefore, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? The questions continue to multiply with this obvious answer. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? He's the one who who would condemn, and he's died for us. Will tribulation or trouble? I mean, what tribulation could amount to anything when we're already forgiven? Persecution? You know, like man would say, well, that's just coming upon you because God's punishing you, like stupid things like, no, no. There's a purpose to conform us to the image of Christ when these things come upon us. It's in no way to separate us from God. It's to draw us close to God. Not famine, not nakedness, not danger, not sword. If you die, you go into the presence of God. Just as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. Paul knew persecution his whole life. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He didn't see this in any way as separating him from God, actually that he was living as Christ lived, who went to the cross because he was persecuted. as all the prophets were. From Abel to Zechariah, who was killed under the altar, he, uh, Luke chapter 11, all who are righteous in God's sight, who walk in the power of the Spirit, who walk according to his will, all of them are stand before God as justified. So then he continues in verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, this is the Apostle Paul, he's convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, on this compounding that Paul does from verse 31 all the way to verse 39, compounding, compounding, compounding the love of God and that nothing can separate us from the love of God. I want, to, I want us to understand that there are many ifs in the Bible, as in the verse that I'm going to read now from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1. And, and I want us to answer the question, why is the writer to the Hebrews making this statement? Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. Now, if you just read that in by itself, a lot of wrong conclusions can be drawn, and I don't want anyone to do that, and I certainly don't want to do it. And so I want to take this in complete context, not only of, in the book of Hebrews, but also in the book of Romans, that's compounding the assurance that if God is for us, who can be against us? Therefore, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, 
we have had good news preached to us, just as they also did. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Now faith, to be saving faith, has to be more than just an intellectual understanding of certain facts. It's not just a creed. It's not believing a creed. It's much more than that, saving faith. So in Hebrews chapter 1, for instance, he starts off by saying, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. So God is speaking, and he's speaking in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He's declaring Jesus Christ to be God. God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Father uses the Son here. He appointed the heir, but there's one God. So again, there's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all involved in creation. But by Jesus Christ, he created the world. And Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. It's only God can. When he had made purification of sins, so therefore he cleansed away sin from those whom he would redeem, both past prior to the cross and those yet future. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty and on high, having become a much better than the angels. He then goes in through these statements in Hebrews chapter 1 to show how Christ is much better than the angels. Because then he goes in verse 5 and says, for which of the angels did he ever say? And he goes down the line of making this thought, which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? And that's from Psalm 27. No, he's the son of God. It makes means he is God. Son, not in sense of time, who came first, father or son, but they both eternally father and son. He goes on, which one of the sons did I ever say, which one of, the, but of the son, he says, not rather than of angels, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That's right. Jesus Christ's throne is the throne of God. Of which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It's all about the throne of Christ who became the beloved Lamb of God, who was the beloved Lamb, who obeyed what the Father wanted in, the plan, in his plan to, to exalt the Son to the highest place, the central point in which men would see the Son and know they had beheld Almighty God. And so the point of recognition of God is the Son. And when he sits down, we come to all the argument of Romans chapter 8, who then can condemn us? If God did not spare his Son, the eternal God, as Father is Father to the Son, and the Son is Son to the Father. Remembering the Holy Spirit, the third person of this Trinity, all in agreement together to fulfill the plan of the Father. 
He goes on in chapter 2 in verse 1. And this whole idea behind 4 in verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Well, how can a person drift away as if to lose salvation? And I'm not, I am most definitely not saying that. I want to make clear that he's not saying that. He is saying, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now in this we understand that the apostles were those who testified, who saw him, who touched him, who walked with him for three years, who were given apostolic gifts, and by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will, he's speaking at the time that this was written, just at the time post-Christ, within years, not decades or centuries, of these things coming to pass. And so what we're saying here is, or what the the writer to Hebrews is saying, we must pay close attention to what we have heard. We must understand that it is an unalterable word, it can't be changed, and we must not be deceived. Now Jesus goes in the remainder of chapter 2, he speaks about him, and he speaks about his being briefly humbled, his going to the cross, his bearing uh, the sins of many. But But we do see him, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And that's verse 9 of chapter 2. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering, meaning Jesus had to suffer. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I will will proclaim your name to my brethren, it says in verse 12. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He's going to sing praise to the Father because we've become brothers of Christ, of the same Father. And again, I will put my trust in him, Jesus says. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He renders powerful 
powerless the devil, that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Again, this is all in a positive tone. And yet he's giving us these admonitions to fear, to pay close attention, lest we do not escape if, we, if in fact, we neglect so great a salvation. Why is the Bible, is God's word taking this slant, going down this road? It's something we must answer. And I'm going to get there. Just stick with me. So now he gives help to us that he does not give to angels. Verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren. We're brethren. He's not brethren with angels. In all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He did not become an angel. He didn't die for angels. He wasn't risen from the dead from angels. Angels who never sinned. We're talking about angels who do not sin. We sinned. We needed to be saved. We needed to be forgiven because we broke the law. The angels protect the law, deliver the law in this very section. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren. That's us. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He was tempted, but he never sinned. He tempted without sin. So we are one with Christ. We go down Romans 8 and we understand he can, no one can bring a charge against us. And now we're being told in Hebrews 4.1, Therefore let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest. Any one of you seem, may seem to come short of it. Hmm, what's that mean? What does it mean that one seem to come short of it? No true Christian can come short of his rest. That's the point of Romans 8 and verses 31 through 39. When you're in, God is, is the one who's not going to condemn. In Hebrews chapter 2 that we're just reading through, He's an interceder, intercedes for us. He, uh, he has the power of death. He has the power of the resurrection. All of that is on our behalf as he intercedes and he brings the Christian through, which is only compounded in Romans 8, 31 through 39. So who's he talking about? Who is it in, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1 that seems to come short, seems to come short? doesn't come short. Well, in verse 2, he kind of begins to explain it, and he says, For indeed we have good news preached to us, just as they also, meaning those who fell in the wilderness, those who couldn't enter into the promised land. Not speaking of Moses or Joshua or Caleb, all sinful people um, who needed to be redeemed but were redeemed and who were servants and who were faithful. Uh, through the 40 years of wandering, even though Moses couldn't enter in because he got angry and, and God said he couldn't enter in to the promised land, but not to heaven. Heaven, he was, he was bound to get in. The son would die for his sins. And in the same way that we're protected through assurance of faith, so is Moses. 
So the answer for this question is found in Hebrews chapter 3, and that's what I want to continue to look at right now. I want to go in here and just bring this to light. Therefore, holy brethren, chapter 3 and verse 1 of the book of Hebrews, partakers of the heavenly calling, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him appointed who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house i mean how much glory does a stone have how much glory does a piece of wood have compared to the one who takes it and makes it into a house. The, the, the one who builds the house makes it for himself to dwell there. He uses it for a covering, covering. He uses it for security. Speaking in human terms of what we do here in this age. Even so, the, the one who makes the house has infinitely more glory than a piece of stone or a brick. God has infinitely more glory than man who makes houses. God made the house. Moses is the house. We are the house. Here's the point he's making. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Who gets ultimate glory? God gets ultimate glory. Who gets infinite glory? The one who created all things. Now Moses was faithful, he goes on to say, in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. So he gets glory, Moses did, because he was faithful in what what he was meant to do, but a message was going to be spoken later which was going to give complete light to what was happening through Moses. And that person, of course, is Jesus Christ. And he says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. (laughs) He's the maker of all things, and he's the maker of the house. It's the, the building. I will build my church. It's not a house of stone, but living stones, of human hearts, of human souls. It's a house of mankind, as he fits all people together with various gifts of the Holy Spirit, in which he dwells and his presence is among his people, as we see fulfilled in Revelations chapter 22, 21, in which he brings all of this to pass. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if, and it must come to pass, it will be fulfilled in his true house, if, we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm unto the end. Now those who are redeemed, those who are regenerate, those who are called, having been predestined, who are justified and glorified, will, by God's grace and power and death and resurrection, they will remain firm until the end. They will hold fast their confidence and boast of hope firm until the end. 
but not everyone will. All those who are true Christians will, but not those who say they're Christians, but are not. So when we talk about the we, or when the writer to the Hebrews is talking about the we, he's talking about the fact that Christians ultimately cannot read a person's heart. No one's heart. So the pastors, the elders, the shepherds, people who are members of the Church of Christ, all are called to disciple one another. Let's, let's let go for a minute the picture that we have of what a church is, as if it's a building of stone. It's not. It's people. Let us let go for a minute what we understand pastors and members to be. Let us understand the building to be people, all the people for whom Christ died, for all the people who make up the church, all benefit from the same sacrifice. Christ had to go to Christ, who went to the cross the same for all people. He died for all people. He's risen from the dead for every single last person who is saved. All of those people who are saved and who are in the kingdom, Christ died for them all. And Christ is faithful to them all. But in the church, in this human church comprised of people who can't read one another's heart. For God looks, man looks on the outward appearance, we're told in 1 Samuel, but it's God who looks on the heart. God alone reads the heart and knows exactly, perfectly well who belongs to him and who do not, even though people fellowship together. And we all say we're Christians, we all believe the doctrines, we all try to live out our faith, but we're not all doing that. So we're together for now. So therefore he goes on and he says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. And you can almost feel this start to escalate in the one who's saying these things, in the intensity of what he's saying. Let me read it again from the beginning to the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. He was angry. It does, he's not saying this with a smile. He's not saying he was joyful with the generation. He's saying, I was angry with this generation. And said, they always go astray in their heart. He's saying this with anger. He says it right here. They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. He's not saying they did not hear on the mountain that was covered with smoke and fire the law of God. They did. They cried out that they did not want to hear any more. They didn't want to hear that even if an animal touches the mountain, it was to be stoned to death. You see, man has a conscience, and men understand that they're evil and they're sinners. And they should, if, 
in this moment as Moses trembled at the thought. But Moses understood God to be a God who called him, who called him with a purpose, who was sending him, had already sent him and was continued to send him with a purpose. And even though Moses trembled on that mountain, he knew, as Job did, as Enoch did, as every prophet ever knew, that God was his Savior. Just as the writer to the Hebrews is speaking to these people about the glory of Christ and the glory of the building, but the greater glory of God, even so every prophet from Abel to the one who's speaking this message today, not as a foreteller, but as one who's telling what the scripture means, knows as one who's in the kingdom by the glory and the grace of Christ alone, that God loves me. Just like God has loved every prophet throughout all time, he loves the prophets. He forgives the prophets. He forgives the members of his church. He forgives those who are called to make disciples of all nations. He forgives. But there was a generation, there's a people in every generation, to which God becomes angry. And he closes this quote right here, as found in, in the psalm, Psalm 95, quoted in Acts 7 by Stephen. In verse 11, he finishes by finishing this quote and says, As I swore in my wrath, he goes from anger to wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Not, he's not speaking of Moses. He's not speaking of Joshua and Caleb. He's not speaking of any true believer during that time period. And I don't know if the names of others, Aaron, um, Miriam, I mean, there are names that can be mentioned. But the, the majority, Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many go that way, but narrow is the gate. Few there be that enter in that way to eternal life. And so this is a message that is potent and it is, Vital for people to hear. That saying you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Identifying yourself with a creed or the church, meaning the people that proclaim Jesus Christ, doesn't make you Christian. For all my hearers who are just outward Christians but are not in their heart Christians, and I, I can't tell that. No one can. If you're one of those, if you're not sure that you're really in the kingdom, I, I really hope this message touches you where you are. I hope you're living in an environment and in a church where accountability is something that's really important. Because he goes on and he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living. 
Now, continuing to go to church doesn't mean that you haven't fallen away. People can go to church until they die and have fallen away in unbelief because they really don't hold fast. They can't because they were never in. They can't hold fast to God and to love God and to seek God with all their heart. They can't because they're not empowered by God. Only the believer can plead with God, Lord, here we are again, I'm on my feet, I'm on my knees, I'm praying to you, and I can't live out this life by my own strength, and I need you. The Christian really does that from the bottom of his heart. He really means it. Those words in themselves can be said and not meant. And in the heart of an unbeliever, a part who's not a person not really in the kingdom, to that person, they don't have real meaning. And so he continues to those who perhaps have an unbelieving heart that fall away from the living God. He admonishes believers, but look, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is the deceitfulness of sin? It's It's that deceitfulness that tells a person he's a Christian when he's not. That tells a person, you're in the kingdom, you believe the creed, you believe the doctrine, you believe the theology, you're in. When he's not, he's deceiving himself. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. That doesn't mean if you die for the faith. It doesn't mean if you you die. It means that the insurance that you had was true at the beginning and it will be true at the end. If it's false at the beginning, it will be false at the end unless you gain a true one. A real assurance, an authentic assurance. Not the deception that sin brings in believing you're partaker of Christ when you're not. And so the writer of Hebrews continues, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. I mean, this is a plea from God. Today, if you hear his voice, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, Today, if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. They they did not have saving faith. It's a plea for a person who does not have saving faith. Do not deceive yourself. Do not harden your heart that you you think you're in the kingdom and you're going to make it certain you're in the kingdom by thinking you are. For who provoked him? He continues, when they had heard him. Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses. And that's a big number. That's a big number. In case you think, well, it's just a few people, but it's not me. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose body fell in the wilderness? Whole generation. Whole generation fell. And to whom did he swear? that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. Disobedient to what? 
disobedient to exercise saving faith. Faith, Saving faith places it all on God. Saving faith means God did it all. God has to do it all. I can't do anything. There's no works in faith. It's faith and by faith alone. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. This is the reason for accountability. And I want to close this thinking with a chapter on accountability, which is plenty of places throughout the New Testament that we could look at accountability. But I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A chapter that's not liked by a whole lot of people for this very reason. I'm just going to read through it. And I want you to understand what I mean about church accountability. It's not unloving. It's loving. Letting a person go to hell without speaking to them or even questioning them, if there's any doubt at all, is, is a hellishly evil thing to do. If, a, if you're looking at a man walking into a burning building and you say, have a nice day, and he walks into that building, do not tell me that because you said, have a nice day in a nice way. Or if you said, you know, the, burning, the building's burning, maybe you shouldn't go there. And, but you say it with a smile. You cannot tell me that person's being loving. First of all, the normal person, seeing a person walking into a building, would at least try to tackle them to the ground, if they could. If not, they would make every effort to keep them from going in that building. That's love. Now, maybe they don't want to hear it, and maybe they're going to accuse you of being evil because you're saying nasty things and you don't want them to have fun by going in the burning building. But the loving thing is to keep the person from going. And this is what we're talking about. This is what I'm talking about right now in this, in this message. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1 starts off by saying, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. It's a horrible, awful thing. And he's just starting because this is what's been said. And he wants to take this into account. Verse 2, you have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead that so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Well, just taken out and put out of the congregation. Now, these are people who understood the grace of God and they understood it in the worst possible way that, you know, you can come to Christ and then no matter what happens and no matter what sin, you're covered by the blood. Not taking into account that people, God is in the process of producing holiness. And so the people, even though we're, we're sinful people, in the process of, of becoming holy, we, we, we put off sin. Okay, so we start pretty raunchy, but a person who comes to Christ, if he really comes to Christ, is very remorseful over sin. His conscience gets heightened, the Holy Spirit opens his mind and his heart, and he begins seeing sin, and I've seen this so many times, including in my own life, and seeing sin and seeing sin and turning from it and feeling sorry. If all of that is kind of missing, uh, the, the person's suspect right from the beginning. Not for condemnation, it's just a question. The question's always this way, you know, is the person really saved? There's nothing wrong with asking that question. If it's done in love. If it's done for the purpose of deciding or helping the person find out whether they're really in or not in the kingdom. Why? Because this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is all about. And this is why he says to them, you've become arrogant. Arrogant, you know, it's a extreme form of pride. And have not mourned 
And you know when someone dies, you know how you weep and you cry and you miss the person? You, you haven't mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed. Why removed? Because they're going into a burning building. We still don't know the person's heart. The point is they're acting like a person who does not have fruit. So in this case, it would be like Matthew chapter 18, where the one sees a person in sin, and he goes and he says, you know, how about this? You know, am I seeing this right? What's going on? And, and then if he sees contradiction or he's starting to reject and he's starting to rebel, and then he realizes and he takes it to two or three more, and if the same system and the person's becoming really rebellious and it's obvious, then you take it to the whole church and then it gets removed. And there's a process, and there's a, pri- a, pro- a process which is kind and loving and caring. For uh, uh, And then he continues, For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. He, he's not even there. And to be a, but the apostle understands what's going on. I mean, you don't do things like this, and you, then you say you're a Christian. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in the Spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> this is really not difficult to understand. He's delivering him over to one who is the one who throws temptation in his way. He wants the destruction of the flesh. Just go back to Romans chapter 8, listen to some of my messages and understanding the flesh and the spirit. We live in the spirit. We do not live in the flesh. We're not, we do not owe the flesh anything. What everything we owe is to Christ. This is, this is what this is speaking about. Not the destruction of the body, destruction of the flesh, which Christ put to to death on the cross. The person's being put out of fellowship for the destruction of the flesh, so he he would mourn as the church is mourning, and then he would come back, and he would walk in the Spirit as he's meant to do, and he would be a spiritual person. If indeed the Spirit of Christ dwells in him, if the Christ Spirit doesn't dwell in him, as we're told in Romans 8, then he does not belong to him. This is what we're trying to decide. Paul had already decided the means by which this would take place. As Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 8. He's to be looked at as a tax gatherer and a heathen. In other words, not a brother. Treated that way for the reason of coming back. He continues, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Now he's going to be destroying the whole church because people can think they can just sin however they want. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's be true. If we're Christians, that we live as Christians. If we're living as unchristians, that has to be taken into account. He continues, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. That does not mean perfect people. It means people who are pursuing immorality as a way of life. 1 John, that's what uh, chapters 2 through 5 are talking about. 
And he continues, I did not mean at all with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. He's not saying not to associate with just immoral people. We associate with moral people to see them get saved and that they might be, become part of the church, those whom God has called. He's not saying not to associate with them. He comes right out and says that. He says, but, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. Someone who says he's a brother, but he's living like the world. He's a brother, but he's pursuing sin as a way of life. And some are very easy to detect. Some are very difficult. Some you can detect as they're coming to you. Some, it's after a long a period, and they're walking away. He's not, we are not to associate as brethren, so-called brothers, if he is an immoral person, immoral that, that, that takes in a lot. Or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, he reviles the brethren, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. To sit down as brothers at the same table of the same family and to eat with them as brothers. Not if they're pursuing sin as a way of life. You go to a brother and he's not aware of some sin or he's aware and he's not dealing with it, a brother will repent, say he's sorry, if indeed he's wrong. Remember, all of this process has to invoke truth on both sides. Some people may be accused of something they're not actually guilty of. You go to that brother and you might be mistaken. Oh, you know, I saw you with this woman, but you know the woman really was your cousin or your sister or somebody you didn't know. And you realize that you feel, you feel like a fool. You know, that can all happen too. That's why it has to be slow. It has to be careful. And you have to hear both sides and you have to work your way through all of it. This is not just a blatant you accuse someone and they're guilty. This is you're going in love and you may find out you're wrong for one reason or another. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Those who are outside the church. Do you not judge those who are within the church? We don't judge the world. That's to God. People who are in the world are facing eternal condemnation. We should be sharing with them the gospel in the best way that we can, by the, which is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he concludes in verse 13 and says, But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. There's just no other way to read this chapter. And I'm reading this chapter in the context of Romans chapter 8, where we have assurance of salvation because he who spared not his own son, how will he not also give him, us also, all things freely? With him, give us all things freely. And, 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 ha- and who will bring a condemnation against God's elect? In that context, we bring Hebrews chapters 1 through 4 in view of this, we need to fear, and we need to be sure we're in the kingdom, into 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and accountability before the church. Now, I'm not taking any one of these chapters out of context 
I believe and endorse that the Bible is very clear and important that we be sealed in the Spirit, which I'll be speaking about in future broadcasts, that being assured in the Spirit, sealed in the Spirit, we have an assurance, a certainty of the life to come because we're in the kingdom. But I am not endorsing the deceitfulness of sin when it tells someone they're in the kingdom when in fact they're not. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the writers, whether, whether it's Moses writing about the law or it's Paul writing to the Roman church or it's to the, the, the writer of Hebrews and warning that you need to be in the kingdom and not just say you're in the kingdom. Or it's Paul writing to the church at Corinth and telling them about church accountability and how important it very is lest we send people to hell. And we help them to go there by helping them to be convinced even though they're being deceived by, by sin and its deceitfulness. Lord, I pray that you would open the hearts of the hearers of this message, that you would just bring people in the kingdom. And those who may be deceived even now and they're listening to this and they think they're in and they've convinced themselves that they are and they're not convinced that they are by the work of the Holy Spirit. Lord, do with your word what the word does, which is it's, it's alive and powerful and, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of both soul and spirit, which we can't, dis- we can't <laughs> separate those two, but you can. Your word can. Even to the joint marrow, the bone is a discerner of both the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Lord, your word does that. I pray you would do that in the hearts and the minds of the hearers of this message. For your honor, for your glory, and for their assurance of salvation or their need to be mourned and to be remorseful and to repent and to truly come into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, his son. I ask these things in his name. Amen.